Greetings and welcome to this week's performance of My Favourite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Welcome back! Hey! How you doing? You having a good day? How you doing? I'm good. <laughs> Wait, are you talking to me? <laughs> I was talking to our listeners, but I see how that can be confusing. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, do- I'm doing great. I hope-, I hope everyone listening is doing great. Yeah, I hope so too. I hope that you're all surviving the heat wherever you are, because from what I understand, it's just hot everywhere. I mean, I can just say in Las Vegas, it has not only been hot, but humid this summer, which is not normal. That's bizarre. Like, so I'm, you know, I lived in the hot, humid of New York City summers because I was not booked and blessed most of the time I was there. So I was (laughs) in the city. Um, So I know what that's like, but I don't expect it here. Here I expect just like, you know, an oven when you're cooking a turkey, you know, and it's like in your Las Vegas heat. Uh, But it's... (laughs) I don't know where I'm going with this. It has not been that that kind of summer in Vegas. But here we are. Here we are. Here we are with episode, oh my God, 14, right? 14. And this is the episode where things get weird. But first, Bobby, what have you been listening to? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me first. Uh, I have been listening to an oldie but a goodie, the original soundtrack to Newsies. The movie. Yes. And this, the movie, and not that I don't love the Broadway show. The Broadway show was probably, when I moved to New York City, was actually the first Broadway show that I saw on Broadway. Uh, Not the first one I ever saw, but when I moved there. So it's kind of special for me. But the movie came out in 1992, and Bobby was seven years old and knew that he liked musicals at that time. And it meant a lot. I mean, it's one of the whole reasons the show ended up on Broadway because there were a lot of millennials who the movie meant a lot to, but to little boys of a certain age, like you just, that didn't exist before. And you're like, they are singing and they are dancing and they're children. Like what? Well, you're blowing my mind, Disney. What's going on here? I mean, there are, there are a couple songs from the Broadway version that I may enjoy more, but I there's like just what? nothing. Well, I like some of the new songs, and I know this is yeah, controversial. Some of the new songs are great. Uh, watch what happens. I know that people hate it because every musical theater girl of a certain age sings it for all the auditions now. Right. To me, I'm like, oh, look at Alan Menken do a little bit of Sondheim right there. Uh, it's like wordy <laughs> patter song. I enjoy that one. I enjoy Santa Fe. So Santa Fe is controversial because... Why? Because I don't like that Santa Fe isn't like him legit wanting to go to Santa Fe and be a cowboy anymore. And... Oh, I see. Okay. Like, look, and Jeremy Jordan is fantastically talented, but I'm also... I'm also one of those people that don't think Christian Bale is a bad singer in the movie or a bad dancer. (laughs) I just... I really enjoy the movie. Like, Once and For All is probably my favorite song in Newsies ever. And in the movie, it's the one that's not actually performed. Like, it's over scenes. Yeah. But, um... You know, the movie is hard to get through at certain points. I don't know how I had the attention span to watch it as a child, but uh, like, I think Anne Margaret is wonderful. Like, I think she won a Razzie for her 
performance. Of course you did. Of that course movie. you did. And the movie won a Razzie and then like wins all the Tonys. Um, I, I like, you know, Robert Duvall, Bill Pullman. Like I, I'm all about all of Max Costello. Like give me the whole cast of the movie. Aaron Lore. I mean, Mr. Idina Menzel. Like that's who he is now. I mean, like he basically right. opens the film. It's I don't know. It's it's a piece of my child. Yes. So Christina, what have you been listening to this week? I've actually been listening to something a little a little different, a little different than what we normally do. Um, so our friend Ben Rimmelauer has um his Spotify playlists yes. that he puts out for broken records. And one of them that he recently put out was his version of Follies. And oh. so for those who don't know, what he does is he goes through all of the recordings that have ever been made of of the show in this case follies and basically creates a playlist of his favorite version of each song from these different recordings and it was fascinating to me because i think i maybe have listened to mm, the original cast recording once at some point in my career right and so this like opened my world up to all different points of view of Follies. Okay. Which was really fun because it's not like whoever Bernadette Peters plays. Sally. Great. So it's not like it's always Bernadette singing Sally's songs. Right. It's all the different women who have played Sally. Sure. Um, And so that was really cool. Like instead of the go-to Elaine Stritch singing I'm Still Here, it was um, Yvonne De Carlo. (sighs) Oh, and you know who that is, right? I don't, but I loved her version. It was so much fun to listen to. <laughs> I so that's that's Lily Munster, like legit Lily Munster. Oh, how and funny! One day we'll talk about folly. This is you talking. I'm not. I'm going to shut up. I mean, I w- I'm about to go on a <laughs> diatribe, but. Yeah, we'll go on a diatribe about Follies some other time. But it was really fun and interesting because I I'm not a diehard Follies fan. I I right. enjoy it, but it's not it's not one of my go tos. And this was really interesting to listen to, and it was really fun to listen to the different points of view on the scoring and how it was arranged. Right. Um. And you know, also from the different decades, you know, so these are very different points of view coming at it. Right. Um. But yeah, that was really fun. So I encourage anyone who um knows Ben Rimmelauer or you don't go look up his Spotify account um, and go follow some of his playlists because they're it's really fascinating. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Ben Rimmelauer. We need to get him back involved on something with my favorite swap at some point. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have been warning you. We even kind of alluded to it when we started, we are throwing out the script. Act two is going all crazy pants. So uh, to Cue you in even further. We should probably give them these clues, right, Christina? Yeah, for sure. Why don't you go ahead and start? Okay, so the first, like, big, like, uh uh-oh, something's up here is in clue number one, which is this. Both of these musicals are based on Academy Award-nominated foreign films. The second one was on Twitter, and it's Jessica Biel starred in the original workshop of one of these musicals. Again. We are emphasizing like where things are going here. Uh, That was followed by clue number three, which was on Instagram. Uh, And it was a, you know, set of torn apart photos from a photo booth. And then Bobby wrote um, a blog post uh, that you could find on Facebook or on our website. And it was 
five Broadway flops starring Patti Lapone. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, she has been in five Broadway flops. That we know of. Uh, and last but not least, the clue that we're giving you tonight is this. Despite flopping on Broadway, again, both of these musicals received a West End transfer. Anybody? Anybody have any guesses? How about we tell you? I think we should Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. Amelie and... Women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Ta-da! Ta-da! We have two shows for you, ladies and gentlemen. Dose. Okay, so I know we're confusing you all, but here's what's going to happen. Tonight, we're going to talk about each show individually, and then we're going to talk about why we smashed them together. Exactly. So we're going to start with Amelie. Amelie. Uh, Amelie, which opened in March of 2017. Okay, so if you know the film or you know the show, you know that this plot is a little, uh, there's a lot going on. So we're going to start with the plot. You ready? Absolutely. Isolated and homeschooled, Amelie decides to move to Montmartre and take a job as a waitress at a local cafe after the death of her mother by suicide adjacent. Yes, I know that sounds strange, but it's exactly what happened. Okay. Content to live a quiet, boring life, Amelie discovers a box of treasures and a wall in her apartment, which sends her on a quest. I love a quest to find the owner. She makes the deal with herself that if the owner is touched by the gesture, she will become an anonymous do-gooder. Throughout her journey to discover the owner, she observes Nino and they fall in love from afar and continue to have awkward near misses to properly meet. Amelie finally discovers the owner of the box and leaves it for him to find. As she watches on, he is overwhelmed with emotion over his box of lost treasures. This leads Amelie to the journey of helping the characters in her life to find mates and rid themselves of their loneliness. In the end, those in her life bring Nino to her and convince Amelie to jump off the cliff, so to speak, and accept his love. The show ends with the two asking the question, where do we go from here? And embracing that the answer is, I don't know. So super quirky, right? It is. So Amelie, the film came out in the 90s and was wildly popular, took the world by storm. Oh, absolutely. Everybody knew that movie, um, even though it was completely in French. So Americans, it was all subtitled. Right. Um, even if you aren't reading the subtitles, just visually watching it, you can you know what's happening. Oh, it which is. Which is the mark of a great film. Oh, it's a breathtaking film. And obviously why it was nominated for the Academy Award for best foreign film. I remember when Amelie was a big deal at Blockbuster in, you know, California, you know, um, yeah. again, this foreign film, but it was, it was part of a trend in the, you know, when this movie came out, I feel like there were these really artsy female driven uh, quirky movies. And, you know, some of them obviously American films, but Amelie was very much of that ilk. And I remember people really embracing this movie when it came out. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons that you do is because even though face value, Amelie as a character can be quite unlikable. Right. Because she's so off the wall and so socially awkward that it's very difficult to, at the beginning of the film, to connect to her. Right. And by about the act two marker in the film, there comes a moment where 
you just realize that she's everything you feel inside on a daily basis. Right. Right. Except that she puts it out there as her forward facing self. Right. You know, and I think um, the the movie, the theme of the movie is loneliness. And, sure. you know, how do you overcome loneliness? Um, and it's so beautiful to watch because I think that we can see ourselves or see people we know in, in any of these characters throughout the film and the people that she befriends and become her family. Right. Really. Um, and it's really beautiful and fun. And I laughed out loud multiple times because it's just like, it's some of the stuff that happens is just too good. You're like, of course that happened. Of course she did that. Who else would do that? No one. It's she Amelie. Did it, Amelie's going to do it. She did Amelie's it. Amelie's going to do it. I'm watching. I was like, of course they made this a musical. I get it. But it was interesting that listening to the soundtrack, because the first thing I did was I went, found the Broadway soundtrack, and uh, all of a sudden, I, I, I felt like I was listening to a different story. Right. Which was hard. That was hard for me, because I really enjoyed the film so much. Right. Um, and the Broadway production, Amelie just was too put together. The character itself was too put together. Yeah. And too likable which is strange to say, they just never found her essence in the material. Well, in the actress who starred in the movie, that's why I'm looking up right now. Like Audrey Tattoo. She is so wonderful and reminiscent of, I think of several people, but one person that always reminds me is young Liza Minnelli, pre-cabaret mm. Liza Minnelli. And she has that, that almost that Flora-esque, that Sterile Cuckoo-esque, where these are not really the greatest people in the world, but the performer brings so much of this likability. I need you to love me. And I need not only in the world of the, the, sh the film or the show to love me, but the audience. I mean, it's a, it's a skill that is very specific to certain people. Like, I feel like if this musical had happened in the sixties, Liza Minnelli would have started it. Hands down. Um, and when I went and watched the bootleg of the Broadway production, Philippa Sue just didn't do it for me. And right. I say that with all the love in the world because she genuinely is ridiculously talented in her ability to manipulate a song and and really and the agents she that she has on stage is incredible. But it's not what Amelie is. Right. You you need someone who is so offbeat, and also she just sounded too perfect, right? And I and I really hate to say that because I, I'm genuinely um, huge fan of Philippa Sue, but vocally she was so dead on and so that's just not who I see in that character. And a big part of that is how it's written. I mean, they really Americanized the sound. Um, listening to the Broadway production. It sounded like Waitress. It sounded like Songs for a New World, even even a little bit of Bridges in there. Um, and so right. it, it felt generic to me. And the film is anything but that. Well, so stepping back, like, because mm -hmm. so how did this musical come to be? Like, obviously, this movie was a big hit in the 90s, this foreign, you know, award winning film. Um, I remember at one point, 
musings before this version, or maybe it was even this version, that the director of the film had gone on record saying that he hated musicals and never wanted to see Amelie made into a musical. There you uh, go. <laughs> so, uh, but I remember it being something that was talked about in the industry of how people, because th- it's, it's a breathtaking film that it's mm. like, well, I could imagine all of those things as musical sequences. So like, wh- how did that process begin? Well, from my understanding, um, they workshopped it up in Berkeley in Northern California with Samantha Barks in the role. Mm. And I found um, a bootleg of that production as well. Okay. Um, And what was interesting to me is I watched that after I watched the Broadway production. And I... It took me a second to realize that I was watching Samantha Barks and not Philippa Sue. Right. Because it felt very much the same. Okay. Um, even though it's two very, very different actors playing the same role, it really didn't feel like different choices were being made. And so it makes me question um, the amount of influence from the director, right? Um, and, and the creative team on what they wanted the essence of the show, the musical, to be. Right. Um, and we've talked about this before, about drawing a line and and um, saying, that's the movie, this is the musical. Right. We're making two different products, right? And I, we've agreed that, for the most part, that is the way to do it. Um, and there are certain musicals that have been very successful by doing that. Oh, absolutely. I just feel like if that was what they were going to do with, this particular film with Amelie that they really had to go for it because they really Americanized the sound and the essence of the show, but still kept it set in Paris as, or in France. And so <laughs> that felt really strange, especially when you walked into the cafe and everybody's talking like they're either from the Bronx or the Midwest. Like, no, there wasn't even consistent dialects of an American right. sound or even like Everybody, let's just make sure we do a general American so that way we live in our own world, in our own bubble, right? right. And so that also wasn't there. And it may, it kept taking me out of the story. It, it felt strange. And then the Berkeley production, the, the set design was very dark and ominous okay. almost. And like everything's on an angle, which I think is fun and, and I actually really liked and then when it went to Broadway, they kept the off-kilter feel, very Beetlejuice-like, except then did primary colors. Which right? so, fits more with the film, I mean, as far as trying to totally. replicate the style of the film 100%. And they definitely... So Pam McKinnon um, was the director of all of the American versions of Amelie. Right. Um, and was with it, I believe, from its inception. And um, by the time it got to Broadway, they de- she definitely went towards the direction of Peter and the Starcatcher and trying to create parts of the set and the changing of scenery with things that are unconventional or things that you would find at, you know, theater camp. <laughs> like, we, when yeah. they have... When when she has her her fish that she is her only friend while she's being homeschooled, it's a puppet, which is fun. And then they bring out like uh, shimmery stuff that you could buy at the party store to be water. And I mean, I kind of get that because, like I said, it's a very Ibsen like film and it's very quirky and dreamlike, but it, it felt 
It felt immature. It felt elementary. Yeah. Well, in the wrong way. No, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, the magic of Amelie, it's a very striking film, you know, mm. and we, you know, we were lucky enough to talk about this a little bit with our friends at uh, Breaking the Curtain with Big Fish. It's like um, you have these films with these like breathtaking visuals and so to go full like everything you find in a trunk with the way you're going to present these fantasy sequences on stage it almost is like i don't know like i feel like you have to you have to just spend the money and like it needs to like it needs to be breathtaking or you go the direction so like we mentioned in the last clue, this got a West End transfer, which is actually opening this year. Okay. Um, they did the UK tour and it started its process for opening on the West End. Then COVID hit. Okay. So now, now we're coming back into proper opening for the West End. Right. Um, but I was able to find some videos and clips online of it, um, some promo stuff. And it is, they went back to that darker feel with the set design. First of all, the big change from the UK is that they went for the actor Musso thing where all the actors play the instruments on stage. So you don't have an orchestra in the pit. But it, it feels more magical. I watched some of those promos as well. Yeah. It feels more magical than the Broadway production. I completely agree. Like And like the fact that it's minimalist. So like they're bringing chairs on and off and they're using those to build whatever they're doing. And that in it of itself using theater magic. Right. And what makes theater special and magical to intertwine these things, I actually think is more effective than spending millions and millions of dollars on right. making it look spectacular right. for this particular show because of what it is at its essence. Um, one of the things that I really was sad that they cut from the film going to stage and the UK didn't really put this back in either from what I understand and all the stuff I read, but they took out the grocer. So the grocer is still in it, and he's really pissy in the film. And Amelie doesn't like that he's so mean to everybody. Mm -hmm. So she breaks into his apartment and like messes with him by switching his light bulbs, by switching out his toothpaste for foot cream, ah. by um, like she'll switch the doorknobs in the different directions into right. his bathroom. And then she she put a pin in his um, plug for his lamp and um, kept it unplugged. So that way when he plugged it back in, it sparked. And like that whole sequence was hilarious in the film. And right. was begging for a comedy song from that character. And I didn't get it in either production. And I was like, you guys, this is a missed opportunity. This would have been like the moment that breaks up all of the loneliness at the beginning of act one. This would have been great. <laughs> yeah, it's missing. It's missing a big number like that. And I think it's important to note that Amelie was written by non-musical theater composers. So it was written Which is by, shocking to me. It is shocking, considering it's such a high profile source material felt, and, and show, ultimately. Well, and it felt more musical theater than Women on the Verge. It definitely by did. Yeah, and just so everybody knows, it was Daniel Mess, I think is how you pronounce his last name, Messe, and Nathan Tyson, who uh, are part of a folk band out of, I think, Brooklyn. <laughs> 
Like fascinating. Yeah, like um based on the research I did, it looks like Daniel plays a stand-up bass and in their band. And yeah, like it's it's that kind of feel. And the Broadway production didn't feel like that, but the UK production does feel like their band. And that's what might make it more magical because yeah. if that's how they wrote these songs, you know. Yeah. Then look, it's like it's like superstar. The more you make it sound like musical theater, the more I hate it. The more it sounds like a '60s rock and roll. Like I'm like, this is a work of genius. Like, yeah. and I know Angela Weber is a composer of all different kinds of music at this point. But it's like it can change so much how songs are presented, like yeah. the arrangements and the way that they're done in a show. I mean, the the score is so fascinating because you're right. Mm-hmm. It it has it's almost like they listen to things like Waitress and even parts of Hamilton. And mm-hmm. they constructed this score to emulate what had worked in other musicals, but it's almost like a patchwork of what's worked in many. And I just I kept in listening to both the original Broadway cast recording and now this British cast recording, A, the British cast recording is, I think, miles above. I agree. Comes across better. But I don't. I didn't hate the Broadway cast recording of Amelie. But I there were songs that just felt like early drafts, like the, the, the mm-hmm. You Need the Haircut song. I was like, oh, I kind of like this, but... We need a couple more versions. Yeah, I needed, I needed the melody to to be fully fleshed out. And I didn't feel like that got there. But even that, I was like, these all seem like, um, they weren't parodies, but it almost felt like someone was writing pastiche of other shows. And I was like, where's Janine Tesori? The entire time I was like, one, obviously, what an opportunity to feature a female composer. But I was like, I begged listening to that cast recording. I was like, you know what this needs? It needs Janine Tesori. It needs someone who can write Violet but also and fun home, but also write Mulan too and Trek. It needs and it needs that. It needs to go to those places because I don't. Well, felt- and bringing up Shrek, I mean, then get someone like David Lindsay Abair, who ended up writing a lot of those lyrics for Shrek. I was also missing the correct feel of the music. You know, the atmosphere that that style creates. I don't know if anyone who listens to us uh, <laughs> uh, watches Eurovision. Yeah. But I do. But you do. Um, but I do, because I love Eurovision. Um, and this year, there the French performer was. I didn't. I didn't know what I was in for when she started singing, and it was one of the most beautiful performances, like in anything I've ever seen. And that sound, I have no idea what she was talking about. Couldn't tell you. Wouldn't yep. know. But. The sound and style is exactly what I was expecting from From, Amelie. Right. Um, And it's not there. And like you were saying, the small change of putting the actors on stage with the instruments. Right. Made it come alive. And also, I should say that one of the other big changes between the U.S. and the U.K. is that everybody speaks with a French accent. So it feels like you're in the middle of a French cafe. And Audrey Brisson, who plays Amelie, is French-Canadian. So she she very much understands this style and the essence of this movie or of this musical. And she is stunning on stage and like encompasses so much of what I'm missing from the Broadway production. Well, 100 percent. Like, again, watching those promos specifically. Um, oh, gosh, what is the big song? They made a pop version of it. Um, oh, uh, the dreaming. Uh, yeah. 
They say it's hard for dreamers. Yes. They say it's hard for dreamers. Like watching that, you know, with her on the subway and everything, watching it on Broadway, fine. Watching it with the musicians and she's moving back and forth with all of these string players and then popping up in that. Yeah. Just in the British production. She encompasses, she has that. I'm not going to call it Elizaism because she's not the one who invented it, but she has, you know, another actress that kept coming to mind of like, this would have worked really well. Christina Milioti from once would have been brilliant in this, like Mm -hmm. would have been brilliant in this because again, another, not the most likable character in the world. You know what I mean? But I remember when I saw once I was like floored by her specifically. um, And was like, you make you make this work. Everybody on stage makes this work, but you make this show work. And Amelie yeah. needs that. And yeah. yeah. One yeah. of the other things that I was disappointed to see kind of lost in the transition from state from screen to f- stage was the loss of how important the photo booth was and finding the bits of pictures. That right. was it, they kind of have it and like they end in the photo booth, but you lose. Instead, they make it about they see each other from afar. They fall in love instead yeah. of she basically steals his his book, his his art book right. of these photos. And she learns about his perspective of the world through looking through this photo album and that was missing for me and that's part of the magic of the film is like this thing and then he becomes intrigued by this girl who keeps playing a game of like she's so scared to meet him in person so she plays this game of leaving him ripped up photos and you know posting it at the subway station and that meet cute romantic comedy thing was just lost I mean, in the that's, musical. That's even mus- in the UK version. That's musical theater 101. And for them to cut that out is so bizarre because that's I agree. They, they've given you they've given you the theatrical device right there. They've mm-hmm. given you they've given you the structure of that relationship and then you delete it from the show. But the other thing I noticed about the Broadway production is there were so many ballads. And I was like, we're in a quirky musical comedy. Why are 80% of these songs slow ballads? I don't care anymore. Move on. (laughs) And not majestic. Like, if you're going to do it, make they need to sound like Disney. You need... Yeah. I was happy that they made a lot of score changes and arrangement changes to the UK production. I think that that helped. I'm excited to see post-COVID if this West End transfer ends up being successful. If they transfer that production back to Broadway, because that would be a very different show. And I wonder if it would have the same impact on American audiences. I mean, look at the color purple. That's what happened. Yep. That's what happened. And on that note, we'll be back after this commercial break. This is our commercial break. To advertise here, please email myfavoriteflop at gmail.com and visit our website for previous episodes. And to buy merch, please buy our merch. We have a one-year-old to feed. And now back to My Favorite Flop. Now we're going to move on to the second musical we're discussing, uh, which is one that I hope y'all have heard about, but it's been a decade. So I feel like this one, this one may have filtered off into the memories of 
2011's past. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, uh, we are going to be talking about Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. This is the epic one that had, you know, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Patti LuPone, Laura Benanti. That's not Gypsy, though. It's, the other it's, not. it's not Gypsy. <laughs> uh, Sherry Renee Scott, Justin Guarini from American Idol. I mean, basically Danny Bernstein, like everyone. Danny Bernstein. <laughs> literally all of Broadway was like, we're going to be in this show and then it's going to flop. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I guess I should tell people the synopsis of this. I get to say a synopsis this time. This is Oh man, Bobby, pressure's the, on. The pressure is on. So ladies and gentlemen, this is the synopsis of Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. That's the whole title, but we're going to shorten it for now. So Women on the Verge is a story about women and the men who pursue them, finding them losing them, needing them, and then rejecting them. Uh, at the center is Peppa, whose friends and lovers are blazing a trail through 1980s Madrid. Along with Peppa, there's her missing, possibly philandering lover, Yvonne, uh, his ex-wife of questionable sanity, Lucia, uh, their son, Carlos, uh, Peppa's friend, Candela, uh, and her terrorist boyfriend, because that's <laughs> part of the plot, uh, a power-suited lawyer, and a taxi driver who dispenses tissues, mints, and advice in equal proportion. It is based on the 1988 uh, Spanish film directed by Pedro Almodovar, uh, starring lots of people, but most famously Antonio Banderas, uh, before he became a huge movie star in the United States of America. Baby um, Antonio Banderas. Uh, he is uh, very young in this movie. I was like... He's like Spanish Hugh Grant in this movie. He, no, he really is. And I was like, <laughs> wait, Evita only happened less than 10 years in this. And I feel like that's a different actor in this <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. So that's the plot of the show. But it, it's very confusing. I mean, it is very much a over-the-top soap opera farce and um, critically acclaimed film uh, that, again just like our last one nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Um, really popular in the 1980s and really beloved by a lot of people in the theater community. Uh, Pedro, really? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, this, I didn't know that. So, the, so why this became a musical is because multiple people had wanted to do it, including Elton John had wanted to do it at one point. Really? You're so confused right now. I am. I Okay, just... For context, everybody, Christina went to watch this movie, and it's on HBO Max if you're interested, but there are no subtitles. En Espanol. So, todos. Todos yeah. en Espanol. So. Yeah, just completely in Espanol. And uh, I, I, as much as I should know more Spanish, I really don't. And I was very confused. It was not like Amelie, where I could watch it and know what was happening I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was watching First Wives Club in Spanish. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I got very lost trying to watch the film. Um, so I, what I was watching, I was like, I don't see this as a musical, but mostly because I don't actually know what's happening. Well, I watched a naughty bootleg of the musical, and I don't know if I completely understood what was happening. In right. English. Um, but yeah, this is a movie that is beloved by a lot of people in the industry. And it's one that several folks have 
talking about turning into, including Pedro himself, was like, I just haven't, I haven't gotten around to it. Um, but Elton John had wanted to do it. It really took David Yazbek, who wrote the music and lyrics, and Jeffrey Lane, who wrote the book. You know, they had just gotten off the the tail end of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And so they kind of had, you know, full reign of what they wanted to do next. Like when you when you create something like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I mean, I don't know if it's phantom level, but it as far as an American musical comedy goes on Broadway, it was very successful. The tour was yeah. very successful and it's huge in the regional market. Um oh, yeah. I, I heard that your husband may have even started in it at one point. Yeah, he did. He played Freddie. One <laughs> of the funniest things I've ever watched. They had had success with this and the full monty both movies based on films i read that they decided they wanted to do another film and they knew they wanted it to be a european film and so they had whittled it down to wanting to do one of pedro's films and they had considered a couple of them but really honed in on women on the verge of being the one that made sense now do we think that it made sense in quotes because it was an easy way to put all of these heavy hitters on stage together and like really I mean, give them give them a vehicle because it felt like they were writing for them individually. Yeah, I mean, look, I, David Yazbek, again, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, had just come off of Sherry Renee in Dirty right. Rotten Scoundrels. So, and she was... Uh, I've enjoyed her throughout her career, but I would say that Dirty Rotten might be her strongest performance. So much of of what her establishments were up to Dirty Rotten were serious roles, you know, and more dramatic roles. And so then you get her in Dirty Rotten and allowed to being really in a screwball comedy. And it's like, oh, wait, like, I didn't know she could do this. And she's fantastic. Like, fantastic. So, I, you know, I imagine that there was an allure to be able to celebrate all of these Broadway divas. You have this group of women who are way over the top that you can write really extravagant, specialized material to. And, um, you know, not only the writers, you also have Bartlett Cher, who has a Rolodex of people that he can call at a given moment. Like, I imagine that what's what drove them to it. Like, that's what would drive me to a project with a large female cast like this, is how many divas can I get on board, you know? Right, which, I mean... In in um, theory, is really fun. It's a really fun right. idea. I don't know that it actually ended up working. I've, yeah, I've only listened to the cast album, and I remember thinking, I don't know what the show's about, and I don't really un- understand that it's ended because, <laughs> like, the last song didn't feel like the end. No. But I have to say, model behavior, if anything came out of that that show, model behavior was the song of the century. Yeah. Laura Bernani doing it. I honestly, I don't know if anyone else doing it, it would work. But her running around, doing those quick back and forths, Peppa. It's just so good. And then she's like, in it, in it, in it. Oh, blah, blah, blah. That was him walking by. And you're just like, oh my God, you're genius. I can't even handle it. Right. She does it in her one woman show. It's online and it is amazing. She, she should never stop performing that song. Okay. So 
This the movie is set in 1980s Madrid. The musical they decided to keep it in 1980s Madrid. I, you know, you and I, we briefly spoke, so we have to relive this conversation. Right, right, right. On the podcast, um, I, I was wondering, like, you know, and this is something we may address upon a little bit later. Uh, you know, why keep it in Spain for Broadway? You know what I mean? Right. And um, I did read in a New York Times article before it flopped this was during the workshop phase which we'll talk about mm. in just a moment that they had considered at one point during the process like do we reset this in new york city D- is it women on the verge of a breakdown in poughkeepsie and i'm like <laughs> i'm like well i Why think poughkeepsie? you i don't know but like i'm like maybe it should have been that because it, this show has a lot of I think issues, but one of the overarching issues, and I think the more that time goes by, is that this show is set in Madrid, Spain, and it's a city in Europe, but it is a show that is meant to represent Spanish-speaking people, and we have a very complicated history of that in the United States and in our industry. And Mm -hmm. so when I mention people like Sherry Renee Scott and Justin Guarini and Patti Lapone and Laura Benanti and Brian Stokes Mitchell... These are not Latino actors. And, you know, by and large, sure, these are people that 100% look like folks that could be walking on the streets of Madrid today. There is a there's a big disconnect. And I think Laura Bonanti gets it the most correct. I mean, I watch yeah. her and I'm like, I do get European Spanish from you, from the way you move, the way you embody this character, that song. The way she speaks. Everything. She actually has the the accent. I mean, she's brilliant in everything, but like even the way when she cracks herself up, she moves like a Spanish woman. You know, right. it's not like an American. She doesn't have the physicality of an American. She really embodies what I feel Southern European. You know what I mean? Like in yeah. certain parts of Italy and certain parts of Spain, like she embodies that. And right. it it works. And obviously, I, I feel like they must have sensed how well it worked early on because they wrote her the show-stopping number in the show. Well, and it's the only number in the show that I actually think makes more sense out of that storyline than it did in the film. The film, right. In the film, that character gets really lost and uh, and kind of becomes unimportant. Again, right. this is Christina conjecturing after not being able to understand any of it. But <laughs> she really doesn't like the the storytelling of her story within the show just through model behavior. Right. You're like, I know exactly what's happening to her. I understand that Peppa is her best friend. Mm-hmm. I understand that Peppa is the one who is always there for her and that she is the friend that constantly winds up in very strange situations that you've got to get her out of. Well, and you know, and I immediately know who she is, where she lands in the friend group. It makes sense. And it totally pushes forward the plot they're trying to tell. You know, the movie, and I guess by association, the musical, it's actually based on a French play, a one woman play called oh, uh, The Human Voice, which uh, for anyone who was a member of the stage network, hashtag rest in peace, uh, we had <laughs> a made for TV version of it. Uh, it's a play by French author, Jean Cocteau. Um we had a version that Ingrid Bergman starred in, uh, basically avoiding picking up the phone from her lover who's about to get married to someone else the next day. And he is trying to contact her. And that's the crux of the human voice put in to become this bigger thing for women on the verge of a nervous breakdown, the movie. 
and eventually the musical. I'm going to say it, and this is awful, but the entire score to this sounds like elevator music. Do you agree or disagree? I think a lot of it does, except for model behavior. <laughs> I, I went through it twice. I was like, I got to give the whole thing, like not just repeating my favorite song. Like, I, <laughs> like it, it's repetitive and it, and it feels, I don't feel like I'm getting any kind of insight into the characters when listening to these songs. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's hard to follow the plot and like to even understand what's going on, knowing their relationships. And, um, uh, yeah, some of it just to I, elevator music is kind of what came into my head. I was like, I hear the Latin. The thing is, I won't say I hate any of the music, mm. like, but I just I'm missing I'm missing introspectives into the psyche of these women, truly, and mm -hmm. I'm missing ranginess. And I'm also, uh, you know, so Laura Benanti gets it. Patty. So here's the thing: Patty has played. A Latina woman before, you know, she has played Ava Peron, and we don't need to get into the politics of that. Latina is also a, a tough word to use because Latina or the word Latin is really supposed to describe people from Latin America. So I right. guess this being a Hispanic character, being yeah. someone from a Spanish speaking country that's not in Latin America. But I was like, where's the Patty Lapone of Evita? Because yeah, I'm missing because I don't get much of an accent when I'm used to her brilliance when she steps into a role. I, it, it and felt, embodies a character. It felt very surface almost, you know? Yeah, it was interesting to me because you look at the story and the characters upon surface, like the way they would be written down in a synopsis, right. you know, in a character bio. And there's a lot to play with there for a writer. Right. When you get to create new material for these existing characters. And they just didn't go there. What this lends itself to, and I think what... I'm merely speculating, but I wonder if one of the things that makes this attractive to the Broadway community is literally the name. That invokes something so specific. Right. Women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Done. You are at the apex of their life and right. you walk into the highest emotional moment right just from the title alone well and this is coming this is coming just like a year or two after next to normal too right you know so this is this is a time when we are embracing it's next to normal american idiot which is all about right. millennials and drugs and like broadway was into <laughs> like edginess and so this is fun because it's like we're gonna we're gonna feature all because there's also like the whole subplot with the the like drug gazpacho in this did you right. see that in the movie at all? I was very confused. Okay. I didn't really know so, what was happening. I'm like, not going to lie to you. <laughs> so the, you get the zany screwball that's also about these complicated women who are, you know, going through emotional things that it's just, it was a, I think it would have been a great opportunity to really explore. Why are all of these women having nervous breakdowns? Right. Like, and are the men to blame? Can we just say, you know what? At the end of the show, that's what it should be. You, it's your fault. And so we are going to band together just like First Wives Club. It's what makes First Wives Club so brilliant. We're going to band well, together at the end and we're going to say, suck it and go do our own thing. And we're going to go save some lives. You I know mean, what I'm saying? I mean, no. Well, but look how that musical turned out. That's a... That's a different story. <laughs> the film is brilliant and the musical should happen. I just need someone to do it right. 
we haven't gotten to the compare and contrast yet, but this too did have a West End production years later. And I was actually shocked to see that Bartlett Share also directed the West End production, but it's a completely different show. Like, is it? The show itself is, it's still women on the verge of an, like, I don't think there were major rewrites, but it's not, it's not the same set. It's very minimalist. Like, it's, I almost like watching videos from the UK production, I almost was like, are we sure that Bartlett Share directed? Because it was very much. It looked Are like the a, arrangements the same. Do the arrangements sound different? Like Amelie? Yeah, like you, the opening number. You know, Madrid. Like, uh, is my mama? Whatever. Like it, right. in the British production, you know, it's a guy with a guitar, and it's it's very intimate with the cast, and really, and you see these people popping up, but it's a unit set. You know what I mean? Um, it felt more authentic. You know. And the actor also looked more Hispanic and sounded more Hispanic, had a stronger Hispanic, just everything Feel about an essence. Joie de vivre, um, <laughs> which is French. <laughs> but that's okay, French. That's the other show. Yeah. So um, it felt, that moment felt, that was one of the big moments that I was able to see from the British production, felt more authentic. But even still, the music to me just didn't feel... That I mean, look, sp especially Spanish music is so romantic Rich. and it's one oh, of, even though it's, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber and I hate to give credit for this, it's one of the reasons that Evita works so well is mm. what he did and with the arranger of Evita is he wrote sweeping music, romantic music, which is very much Spanish music, you know what I mean? Yeah. And was able to arrange it so that it does give enough of that latin feel to it while still feeling like musical theater i think this should go farther but to me you know this was missing any big sweeping horns mm. or big sweeping string moments i didn't feel for a movie that's kind of a melodrama soap opera you couldn't get that in the music except for model behavior so yeah i think that if you were going to do it again or you're going to adapt this story again you might need to completely adapted in a different way maybe change the yeah. title maybe change the setting take the characters and situations and allow yourself to tell a different story um or the same story but in a different way because they did this and i i just don't see the point of doing it again this way because i think like this one exists right well, they've proved in two different markets that it doesn't work. Right. Because it was a limited engagement in London that um, was extended and then canceled the extension. So um, it played played for less than a year in the West End. So, Right. This commercial break is sponsored by Please Buy Our Merch. Please visit www.myfavoriteflop.com com today. Let's start with the question that needs to be asked. Why put both of these shows in the same episode? There's a couple reasons. I think both films absolutely speak as being ripe for musicalization, you know? It's interesting that you say that because when I was first watching Amelie, I actually kind of went back to my question I had with Queen's Gambit is how do you write a musical right. for a central character that is so introspective and cerebral? And so how do you do that on stage and maintain 
the essence of the character. And to a certain extent, I I could say the same for Peppa, you know? Peppa becomes very damsel in distress, in my opinion, in in the musical without any of the funny because of her heightened situation. And so I think that both of these shows weren't able to crack that crack that thing in the story. No, and I think, you know, I I mean soliloquies exist in musical theater, you know, they've they've worked successfully in other shows. I don't think either of our leads, Peppa and Amelie, have been given the moment to have those self-reflecting interior. I mean, they're really, you know, things that Sondheim, we've talked about this with Anyone Can Whistle, Sondheim really pioneered these ideas of characters reflecting on how they feel about things. I mean, that's the plot of Into the Woods. None of the songs actually feature any action, which is what I think so many actors love about it. He writes really, they're monologues set to music. Um, These shows don't, the shows that we are referencing tonight don't have that. Um, They don't have those moments for really any of the characters um, where we can break away from the action. Time stops everywhere and we can get in their heads. I think that one of the other things that I find really interesting is that both of these shows are pioneered by men. And just to expand upon that for a second, you know, Amelie, yes, when it was in the U.S., was directed from inception by a woman. Right. It didn't work. When it went to the U.K., the director was a man and he's actually someone like Bartlett Scher who is known for reimagining shows. Right. So his name is Michael Fentiman and um, he is, <laughs> it's ironic because I was able to find some, some reviews on his past work. He did a completely reimagined version of the importance of being earnest to the point where like he added in new script Oh. In certain places, like actually changed the language, completely panned by the critics. They hated it. Of course. And then he did a reimagined version of loot, and the critics loved it. Okay. So, you know, he is known for just going for it and trying something. Right. And and he's always seemingly given the space to do it. And and people trust him to just kind of try and see what happens, which sure. there's something really beautiful and romantic about that, you know. And then Bartlett sure is known for doing that. I mean, his Tony Awards come from him reimagining classics. Yeah, it reimagined like uh, what he did with South Pacific and The King and yeah. I and things like that. It's like My Fair Lady. Oh, yeah. I mean, he took these shows and he does it in a subtle way, too, but he allows mm-hmm. them to be digested by modern audiences while still staying true to the piece. So it's interesting that both directors who are known for similar things were attached to these two pieces. I think that if these shows had, again, I don't know if it would have actually sold in America if you had kept them true to their source in that you bring in French composers, you bring in Spanish composers or at least Spanish creative somewhere on the team. Right. And you go for it and you try and you see what happens when you create that and do American audiences respond? Well, so do you think that should U.S. writers be adapting foreign material? I mean, I never say never, but I do think we're limiting ourselves 
by saying we shouldn't explore the other option. Right. You know, I think that American musical theater and like I the the gatekeepers of American musical theater really feel that America does it best when it comes to musicals. Well, we officially invented uh, them and it's something yeah, we should be proud of. Yeah, which is great. But I I don't, th- especially in this global society, right? In, in the way that the internet is now, I mean, nothing is solely one country's anymore. Right. It's just like, right. that's just the case. And the wonderful thing about America is that we are a melting pot. So why exclude those options. Well, and and look, there have been successes in the past. You know, Fellini, probably one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Italian filmmaker, uh, has had several of his films adapted to the Broadway musical stage. You know, Nine. Nine and Sweet Charity, which is based on, you right. know, Knights of Calabria. And, uh, well, you know, I think it's interesting to bring up both of them because nine nine they don't reset it. It's still Guido Contini is an Italian filmmaker who's basically based on Fellini in real life and all right. of these women in his life. I mean, it's kind of like the opposite plot of women on the women verge. On the verge. Um, like he's Peppa. Uh, no, but um, that's, that's been very successful. I would consider that a very successful adaptation of a musical. That's very straightforward. Maury Esten um, and the team, you know, uh, Tommy tune, all of them, put together i think a very strong product that and look i am italian american like i feel like be italian like even when fergie does in the movie who is fabulous by the way but i'm like i'm like this feels this feels culturally on board like i don't feel like it's cloying i don't feel like it's over the top i feel like it feels genuine and then you have sweet charity where bob fossey is like we're gonna set it in new york she's not a prostitute anymore she's a dance hall host she's got a you know and builds totally it, works builds it as this you know masterpiece of choreography and a star vehicle which for his wife but like we've learned over time it's not just for gwen Verdon. it's it's really no. an empowering depressing is a beautiful you say what you want about sweet charity it's one of my favorite musicals of all time I love it. I love that it's messy. I love that it's not written for a woman who can sing her face off necessarily. And that it is, is she is not always likable. Right. And that she doesn't win. That's Knights of Calabria. I mean, he took the movie and it's completely different. But that is the heart of of that movie. But they said it in the United States. So, So do we feel... Let's look at each of these. Do you think Amelie would work better had they reset it completely? I mean, they'd have to change her name because that's not an American name. No, like call her Amy or something. Like, had it been Amy, explanation mark the musical. Do you think that's the direction for Amelie or? Absolutely not. You can tell that that film is a collaboration in a way that the show was not. Yeah. The musical was not. And I wonder if the reason it it's it works so well is because like we were discussing with Flora in, in our previous episode, it's lightning in a bottle. You happen to find all the right pieces at the right time and no one else is going to make it work like that. Right. You know, and I think that the UK has definitely cracked it for the stage a she lot better. She definitely reads much better than Philippa did in the show. 
but also the way that they're staging the rest of it, yeah. the way the types of actors that they're looking for within that, I, there is intrinsically something that something different that you're going to get when you go out looking for actors who are more than triple threats. Like they also have to play an instrument professionally, right. and so you immediately change the energy in the room, right? Yeah. So I think that that makes a huge difference right. for something like Amelie. Um, for Women on a Verge, I do. I think like you were right. Take it out of context. Keep the storyline. Keep the soap opera-esque. I think that that works. I don't think that you need to get rid of that. In fact, I think you need to go farther with it. Like, set it in 90s New York. Let it be yeah. a little little bit of sex in the city. Let it be a yes. little... Like, to me, to me, I'm like, it's 90s New York City. It's the world of friends. It's the world of sex in the city. 90s TV New York. That is, to me, yeah. that's where you reset Women on the Verge. And you give it... Like, actually, I think David Yazbek would still be a good choice to write the music. Well, but, yeah, if you're setting it in that that context, yeah, I think so. I think he would still be fun. I just know that whoever did it, it would need to be. Because even if you are 90s TV New York, there need to be bigger songs. Like Patty Le- Lucia's character, whatever, Lucy. Was that weird? That's not a 90s name. You need a better one. Um, <laughs> like Charlotte. But, Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte, like Charlotte's song Invisible, like it just made me so sad because I know Patty can give it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm watching her have a breakdown in this because I watched several vitters ever do it. And I'm like, it's just not big enough. Like, where's Patty's big like Rose's turn? That's I, what I want. Oh, gosh. What's the song where? Wait a goddamn minute. Oh, could I leave you? Follies. We're keeping it on brand. Hey. Um, like, wh- I wanted that. I was waiting for her to drop in that in Invisible. And I was like, nope, not getting it. Not like it needs. Yeah, I, I think that's that's I, when the show is called Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. That is some strong wording. Right. So you really have to deliver on that. Well, there you have it, folks. Our first two-show episode. And it's only getting crazier from there. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Anyway, thank you all for coming back after the intermission and enjoying now episode 14 of My Favorite Flop. Um, We appreciate all of you, and we urge you to keep listening, keep telling your friends, and... um, Yeah, Christina, where can they find us on the interwebs? Well, on the interwebs, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the Ticket of Talks, all at My Favorite Flop. Uh, You can also head over to our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com, where you get to visit the merch store. Yeah. That's right. We have My Favorite Flop merch, and we're going to keep telling you until you buy all of it, because you can get My Favorite Flop's logo on mugs, t-shirts, sweatshirts, water bottles, even little stickers for your refrigerator. or But also... You get some really cool, like, some of those t-shirts that we came up with, I gotta say. Like, the flopaholic definition. Come on, guys. I mean, If you don't know what we're talking about, you need to go look it up. Yeah, and the Carrie and Friends is just fun and fantastic, so. Carrie and Friends. I like that one. 
Yes, my favorite. I wear that one a lot. <laughs> um, so please visit the merch store. And of course, uh, if you're listening on our website, we actually are on all major podcast platforms. So make sure to head on to Spotify, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, etc. But the most important one, Apple Podcasts, because that's where you can click the little subscribe button doesn't cost you anything uh, so that you can get notified right away when we release a new episode. And if you really love us, you can click that five star button and leave us a review because the more reviews we get, the higher we go in the rankings. uh, And it allows curious people to be like, what is my favorite flop? Like all of our friends in Lebanon. We are really really popular we are in Lebanon. trending in Lebanon friends and it's very exciting like we're if in the, any of you are listening please come find us on social media and say hi um, email us at my favorite at gmail.com we'd love to talk to you we'd actually love to have a conversation with you about what musical theater is like in Lebanon uh, because that would be fascinating um, I agree so send that email uh, all right, so I guess we should give them the clue for next week, right? Yes, and uh, when we said it's about to really get crazy, I think this will tip you off. Okay. Well, here it is. The clue for episode 15 is this. Combined, these three shows played 172 Broadway performances. That is flopalicious, Bobby. That is like flop mania happening right there. How are we going to cover <laughs> three shows in one episode, Christina? I feel like we've bitten off more than we can chew. But no, I think we're up for the no, challenge. No. We're up. For we're the totally challenge. up for the challenge. That's and also, great. like once you once you guess the theme of the episode, is going to make it all come together. Yeah, because like I'm not going to give anything away. All right, Christina, do you have any parting words for our audience today? Why didn't Simba go to the vet? Because he was feeling fine. Okay. Bye. Bye.